Lord Jesus, we thank you that uh, you are the one who has come to save us, uh, redeem us, and establish us and give us life and life to the full. And Heavenly Father, for being a father to us, and great is your faithfulness to us uh, in spite of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I want to talk this morning about God's faithfulness toward us, especially in light of last week, uh, that we're all in the same boat. And I hope that after last week, we can all agree that we're all a big mess. Uh, we're all neurotic. We all have our problems. And um, we need someone to come and rescue us. And that, of course, is always the theme. Uh, but this morning, I want to look at a couple Bible passages in the life of Henry Francis Light. Uh, you know who he is, even though you don't know who he is. Uh, Henry Flan- Francis Light was an Anglican clergyman and a hymn writer. He was born in 1793 in Scotland, and Light's father was a ne'er-do-well. Uh, he really went for it. And so when Henry was just a little boy, uh, he abandoned uh, Henry, his mother, and his younger brother, and moved to London uh, because that's just what he wanted to do. Uh, and sort of his last thing that he did for Henry was he provided a boarding school education. Uh, his mother and younger brother would move to London, and both would die shortly thereafter. And so Henry was left all alone in the world, an orphan, except for the kindly headmaster of the school that he was at who would invite light into his home during the holidays. And even Light's father, though still alive, would not even allow Henry to call him father. He would sign all of his letters to his son Henry, your uncle. And yet, if you listen to any of Light's hymns, Abide with me, Jesus I my cross have taken, Praise my soul the King of heaven, They are permeated with the image of God as Father, which is to light a source of great comfort and assurance. Uh, And even as I sing Light's hymns, among others, I feel as if I sing these hymns with two minds. Part of me says, I believe. And yet another part cries out, help me in my unbelief. Light was given a great insight into how a Christian thinks about suffering and the fact of life and how the gospel applies. How is it that in the midst of our own circumstances and condition that we can hold fast to Jesus and his message of grace to us and for us? Light writes in um, Jesus on my cross have taken, man may trouble and distress me, Twill but drive me to thy breast. Life with trials hard may press me. Heaven will bring me sweeter rest. Oh, tis not in grief to harm me while thy love is left to me. Oh, twere not in joy to charm me were that joy unmixed with thee. Light is not saying when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. That is not biblical. But that, but that there will be trouble that you will doubt, but these things drive us to Jesus himself, who by his death and resurrection has secured for us adoption as sons and daughters of God. And so we cry, Abba, Father, and look to him, our only hope and refuge in this broken and fallen world. Well, 
even though Light's story is, uh, is in the extreme, uh, I think that all of us can relate to it, whether we have a not-so-great uh, relationship uh, with our fathers, whether we have no relationship with a parent, uh, or um, even if we do have a great relationship with a parent. Um, my dad and I have a good relationship. Uh, we don't communicate, but maybe at best once every other month, and it's normally through grunts on the telephone. <laughs> Um, and uh, it, it concerns the weather and, and what he's up to and, and what he's doing. And when I called him, uh, he grew up in the church, but like he just he doesn't know what's going on. And um, and so when I called him uh, to say that that I'd been named the dean, I said, Dad, I'm just calling to let you know that I'm um, uh, been named the dean of the Advent. And there's silence. And he says, Is that a good thing? Because <laughs> he's thinking like college dean visits. And I said, I said, it, I said, it, it is a good thing. He goes, that's great. All right. And and, uh, and I could hear some noise in the background. And I said, uh, well, what what are you doing? And he says, oh, we're driving to the airport. We're going to the Keys. And I was like, what? You know. So it was like all of a sudden, needle off the record. Forget the dean's things. I want to talk about Isla Morada. But um, uh, my dad uh, is not a procrastinator, but uh, he's very much. When the opportunity presents itself, go for it. And uh, my grandfather, who was very quotable, used to say, uh, hard work pays off in the long run, but laziness pays off right now. And um, <laughs> so at that moment, I was thinking, deanship Isla Mirada. Yeah, yeah. My grandfather was not helpful to teenagers. Uh, but regardless of your relationship uh, with, with your dad, or it has a lot to do with it. And if you have small kids, you know this, that how your children interact with you and what they see in you really does uh, a lot in forming their impression of God, uh, who they think God is, what are God's properties. And uh, Joe gave a great illustration this morning in his sermon about the girl who had grown up and had a bad experience in church uh, and uh, decided that she was going to be an, an atheist. And a lot of people will say to me, well, I just feel like Christianity is an emotional crutch. You know, it's, it's there. For, and I said, oh, it's, it's much more significant and much worse than you think. Uh, it's not an emotional crutch. It's a foundation, right? It's, it's much more severe and significant than you think that it is, that it's not just something to get you through the bad times, uh, but in fact is all-encompassing, and it's even more than a safety net. It's a foundation, and I've yet to meet anybody who is an atheist or an agnostic uh, who hasn't made that decisional out of some traumatic event in their life or some experience. And normally that's the accusation of Christians, right? Well, you're a Christian because of some crisis that you went through. Uh, but I bet you if I talked to all of you this morning one by one, that would not be your testimony, right? Most of you would probably have a testimony like me, um, I might have very well been a Christian from my mother's womb. Right? There's not a time when I can remember not being a Christian. Uh, and a few of you would have those, you know, I, I used to, you know, you might have a crazy uh, testimony of, you know, I was jumping a dirt bike through rings of fire across the Grand Canyon on a tightrope. And, uh, and, and as I was on fire and dangling from the line waiting for the helicopter, I thought, I need Jesus. Um, um, but doubtful, right, uh, that that's not necessarily the way that it works. And um, uh, and some of us did have a conversion experience later in life. It might have been in high school uh, through a ministry like Young Life or in college through a Bible study or Campus Crusade or, or something like that, IV. Uh, or it may be that uh, 
It may be through your spouse. Um, and throughout the New Testament, we see hints of people's testimonies. When uh, Paul writes to Timothy in his second letter, he says, I think of your mom and your grandmother. I bet you a lot of us have testimonies about moms and grandmothers uh, passing the faith on uh, to us. And yet, in spite of it, uh, the age at which you become a Christian or at least become aware of when you became a Christian or when the Lord got hold of you um, – we still all bring a lot of baggage into the relationship. Uh, some of us bring baggage. Some of us bring U-Haul trailers. And, uh, and God has a way of, of dealing with all of that. In the case of Henry Light, you look at his life and you say, this guy has every reason to be majorly ticked off. Right? Uh, but what he saw in his life was God intervening. And you would think by what I've just said of Henry's life that, oh, it must have been the headmaster. The headmaster must have been the guy that, that Light was able to latch onto and have a spiritual father, and that wasn't the case. Do you know when Light said he became a Christian? He'd been ordained already for about 10 years. Uh, believe it or not, uh, a lot of people in the church have turned out that way, thankfully. Um, we'd like to get them converted a little bit before they're ordained, uh, but <laughs> I've got a long time as the dean to figure that stuff out. Um, but Light said that he was visiting a fellow clergyman in the parish next to his. At this point, he'd moved from Ireland to Cornwall, uh, which is very lovely if you ever get a chance, right next to Devon in the southwest corner of England. Um, if there are any surfers in England, that's where they live. And uh, he was down there, and there was a neighboring clergyman who was dying, and they were sort of of the same stripe, which is they weren't preaching anything heretical from the pulpit. They weren't preaching anything. They just would kind of get up and say, Nothing. Like maybe be nice to your neighbor, um, don't don't treat your children too harshly, just harshly enough. Um, I went uh, to a Roman Catholic church once in New Orleans because of a girl that I was dating. Um, it wasn't Lauren. Uh, I saw the light shortly after this, and uh, and so I went to this because everybody's in. I mean, everyone in New Orleans is Catholic, is as Catholic as their mother is alive. Um, it's sort of like no, they're they're Catholic like the Olive Garden is Italian. And so I, I went to this Roman Catholic church, and this little Dominican monk gets up in the pulpit, and he looks out, and he says, just be nice to one another. You could tell he had some parish issues. And then he turned around and got out of the pulpit. Right? Uh, at first, I was alarmed, and I thought, that's it? But then I kind of appreciated it, because I'd rather have 10 seconds of that than 30 minutes of that. Right? So he spared us. And um, so that's where Light was. Light was preaching uh, nothing, just nothing. Uh, I'm sure he's driving his parishioners crazy. Spurgeon has a great quote, which I wish I'd written down, but he said, you know, I preached the law until uh, I made everyone basically a slanderer, adulterer, a fornicator, you name it. Uh, uh, and then I started preaching the gospel, and the deaf began to hear, the dumb began to sing, uh, the blind began to see, and the lame uh, began to leap for joy. And when Light was visiting this clergyman, uh, the clergyman from his deathbed looked at Light and said, I've got it all wrong, and you've got it all wrong. And he said, when you read Romans, read it as it is. Allow God to speak for himself. Uh, it's not figurative. It's actually what it means. And Light thought, 
Okay, you know, dying wish, that's fine. Uh, the clergyman died, and from that moment on, uh, Light's life was changed uh, forever. Uh, he grew an enormous parish there in the southwest of England, and he began uh, to write these hymns. And yet, life was not all sunshine and lollipops for Henry Francis Light. I want to read from Romans what Light was reading uh, in the midst of his conversion. Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a good one. I like it. So Paul has just written this, and Light is reading this, and you have to believe that life has a powerful effect on us uh, a lot of people uh, that I will talk to um, in premarital counseling, and we talk about family systems and how uh, family of origin dictates a, a lot of stuff and marriage. And so, for instance, uh, you know, and well, let's not get into that. So, uh, but it does, it does. You know what I'm talking about? Just expectations. And I'm amazed by the number of people when I when I start talking about this, I don't even bring it up. But the dad will, or the, the groom to be. Uh, the husband-to-be, the groom, will say, well, I'm not attached to my mom's apron strings. Like, let's talk about that. Um, you brought it up. Um, and, um, and the way that they think, they're absolutely right. They're absolutely right. They've sort of gone off, you know, they've, they've left the reservation, and they really have very little to do with their mom and, uh, and her power over them in the active sense is very minimal, right? It's, it's not, but it's amazing the power that that mother has over the child even in her absence. Clearly, there is a hold on the guy saying, I'm not attached to my mom's apron strings, but not in the way that he thinks. Uh, mom is not present, and yet her power is noted in her extreme absence. Now, some of y'all, nobody in here deals with that stuff, but, <laughs> but, we all, regardless of where we are in our faith, have dealt with our parents in a certain way, and it has a powerful effect on us, whether we want to admit it or not. And so uh, Light is here. Uh, his sibling, his, his brother has died. His mother has died as a result of, of the father leaving. Uh, statistics were much worse, uh, were better back then, but worse. So at this point in time, uh, you may know this, that uh, one-third of children born in America today are born without a father in the household. Uh, another five million 
are born into a household with no mother. So about a little over 20 million children born in the world today uh, are born into a single-parent home. And until uh, around almost World War II, do you know Webster's Dictionary, how it defined the word orphan? A child with one or no parents. So if you had one parent, according to the old definition of being an orphan, you were an orphan. You were an orphan. And indeed, that was the case uh, for Henry Light. Um, One of the uh, even uh, uh, sadder uh, statistics is that uh, 54% of all African-American children are born into single-parent homes. Uh, And in fact, uh, there are only seven states in which um, uh, it reaches uh, the 60% mark, I think, uh, for children born into African-American homes. Uh, number one cause of poverty in America is children born into single-parent homes. And so uh, in America, it, the, the children who are, are born into two-parent homes, the average coupled income is something like $80,000. Uh, but the average income from a, for a single mom is $24,000. So you do the math. So without dad around or any other parent, it's a problem. Uh, that's today, right? Light's mother, she had no options. And it wasn't like she could say, well, I'll be a telemarketer or, um, or you know, I'll just uh, I'll get a job as a that was not an option. And so she and the son moved to London to be a little bit closer to her family, hoping for some charity from them and simply being in an urban setting. Uh, the church and those who are generous possibly stepping in. Uh, but they both died in their poverty. And then, of course, uh, that's, that's a pretty significant blow uh, to be a little boy and to be told uh, by the headmaster, uh, you now really have no place to go. Uh, but in addition to that, to have your dad say, don't call me dad. I know that I'm your dad, uh, but, but at best, let's just say that, that I'm, I'm your uncle. And um, uh, some of us in this room have dads that behave more like uncles. Uh, you know, um, sometimes that's for the benefit uh, you know, they tend to be fun and, you know, let's go on a trip and let's do this and kind of buddy-buddy. Uh, my grandfather in his later years went off the deep end a little bit and he began to sign his letters to me, Bob. <laughs> and um, and um, I, I could never say, dear Bob. Um, and, uh, and at one point he sort of been, he said, you know, you, you ought to call me Bob. And I said, uh, I ought to call you granddad, right? That's what I re- that's, that's, that's really, and what he didn't understand is that what I needed, I needed granddad, right? You, you, need, you need dad. There's a reason why the family is the way that it is. And so um, Light had nobody. He had nobody. And like a lot of people who get emotionally damaged, he sought refuge uh, in the church, which is a good place to seek it. Not sure that they ought to be ordained all the time, but, uh, but that's what happened. It uh, happens today all the time. And uh, I think it's safe to say that he's pretty messed up and had every reason to be. Had every reason to be bitter, uh, had every reason to, um, to be able to say, well, this is why I am uh, the way that I am. Uh, but after his conversion experience at the deathbed of his colleague, uh, his life was different. And he read these words from Romans, and um, it was changed. He realized that no matter what had happened in his life, nothing 
could separate him from the love of God. The death of his parents, uh, the death of a sibling, uh, the abandonment of a father. And he probably began to, like all of us, to look back on his life and to see even in those darkest moments, at the, at the moment, they're awful. And looking back, they're still awful. But for those who know that nothing can separate us from the love of God, you begin to see God in those situations. As crazy as it seems, there is God. Now, when Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He also quotes uh, about sheep being led to the slaughter. I also come from a family that says, look, you got to make it happen. You got to step it up. You got to, you know, if, if the opportunity presents itself, you've, you've, you've got to be on it. And um, sometimes that just doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't work at all. And in fact, the picture that the Bible gives us is that we are sheep. And as if the world weren't hard enough, uh, we have an adversary, the devil. And what is the image that the Bible gives, the persona that the Bible gives the devil? A wolf, right? A wolf. Sheep versus wolf. Who wins? The wolf. Every single time. Every single time. Wolf versus shepherd? Who wins that? The shepherd. The shepherd. And so in our trials and tribulations of life, what Paul is saying is it's not that you go, sure, we put on the full armor of God, but we have one who does battle on our behalf, who goes for us. It's not, you know, in seminary, I, I went to a place where, um, where things were very intense spiritually, which was a good thing, but, but people would try to one-up one another about their spirituality and say, you know, oh, I just got into the spirit last night and I stayed up till two in the morning. And I said, I got into some spirits too, but not the same spirit. And I was like, uh, uh, um, uh, so there were these, ba- and, uh, and so John Zoll and I used to joke about people getting, like if so-and-so got into a prayer battle with so-and-so, who would win? Um, uh, and uh, just sort of intense spiritually. And of course, it's, you want to pray with fervency. The prayer of the righteous availeth much. But um, what the Bible says is that the battle's been won for you, that you have an advocate, one who stands in the gap between the enemy and between you. And what Light understood is in those situations that in your helplessness, you call upon a faithful God who is armed and ready. Right? A lot of people think that you know, the opposite of God is the devil. But if you read the Bible, God has no opposite. Uh, the devil is a, is a creature. He's subject to the authority of God. And there will come a day when he will be completely and totally overthrown. And so at the very least... I mean, read the end of the book. God wins, right? Uh, there's the assurance of that. And so not just in any, but, but who can be against us? For he who did not spare his own son, but gave, him up, gave himself up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against us? For those of us that have a history, a past, uh, that is constantly thrown back in our face by the enemy, by our so-called friends, by those around us, uh, by even our family. Um, you know, it was not a, a real praiseworthy thing. Uh, the clergy at one point in time was kind of a, a nice gig. And, um, and people were honored and, 
and it was sort of, if you were born into a, an aristocratic family in England, the third son would go into the church, right? The first son would take over, the second son would go into the armed forces, and the third son would go into uh, the church. Um, and and yet, uh, lights passed. That's he was not anxious to share his testimony. Uh, that was not something that that you wanted everybody to know. And yet, he was able to go through life with great confidence and faith because of what Jesus uh, has done for him and for us. And even in this world, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Nothing. There's nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of God. I think it's very funny, too, that Paul says, for I am sure that neither death nor life. Life gets in the way. Uh, More often than not. And God understands that. I want to draw our attention to a very uh, a, a parable very briefly. And often this is called the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. But really, I want us to think of it as the parable of the compassionate employer. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last down to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first in the first last. This is a modern day parable. Um, If you want to, we can all take a field trip down to Home Depot one morning. uh, And there at a certain section of Home Depot, what will you find? Day laborers, right? There they are. And why are they there? They don't have regular work and they hope that somebody is going to pick them up for work, right? So they go with a spirit of expectation, uh, but they know that they need to work in order to eat. They leave their wife and their children in the morning hoping for a job. And if you actually go to Jerusalem to the Damascus Gate, they're still there. And what will happen, like here, they pull up and uh, someone will go running out in the road. How many workers do you need? What are you doing? <clears throat> Five. They jump in the back of the truck. They take off. Job for the day, hoping for a little bit more. Right? So this is not an outdated parable in the least. Um, but if you were to show up at Home Depot or the Damascus Gate uh, around noon, would they be there? Maybe, maybe a couple, but no, pretty, I mean, because at that point, who, who's going to, they might stay a little bit longer because it might be like this guy, he goes back, 
right? Because they might assume, well, he didn't have enough workers. But we don't give any indica- we don't get any indication from this parable that the master uh, was saying, well, the, the vineyard it, it's it's a little grapier than I thought, right? a little more leafy. We need some more workers, and so he goes back. There are clues as to why he goes back, but he keeps going back. He goes back. He goes at six, a denarius a day. He goes back at about nine. I'll give you what I think is fair. Same for 11. Goes back again. And then he shows up at 5 p.m. and says, you go work too. And he finds people there. So when he shows up in every instance, everybody's desperate. Everybody's got a story. They need work. They need to provide for their family. And so he employs them. The clue that we have in the scripture is that he goes back looking. What is he looking for? The master is looking to see if anybody's left. He doesn't necessarily have work for them. He wants to provide for them. He wants to bring them into the vineyard. And so even when he got the most desperate are the five o'clockers, right? Because they're the only reason why they're still there at Home Depot at five o'clock is because they're thinking, I got to go home and face my wife. And I have nothing to show for it. And so I'm going to just hang out here until I really have to go. And the last minute, the master shows up and they go off and they don't they don't negotiate for a wage. They don't care. They just are going to be able to bring home something. And then. He has the paymaster, the foreman, who just all of a sudden shows up on the scene because really the master has been doing his job, right? Clue, uh, the master has been coming and getting the workers and bringing them into the vineyard. Uh, And then he repays, pays everybody the same out of his generosity. The first workers who are ticked off, who think, I'm going to get a little bit more, um, are not saying that this, that I'm being underpaid, They're saying, this is really unfair. This is really unfair. And yet, the point that Jesus makes is that um, think back to that time when you were on the street corner and didn't think that you would be able to work. This is just a side note. Uh, I begrudge God's generosity a lot. There are people who I hear, uh, I don't necessarily know them, but you know, some really dastardly person becomes a Christian, and I think, oh, of course. Right. How convenient. Right. Glad I'm going to be next to them um, uh, in, in heaven. Uh, you know, I do begrudge God's generosity. And especially when uh, <clears throat> they fall from grace. I knew it. I knew it. Uh, and yet uh, God says, uh, you you begrudge my generosity. Uh, you should be, uh, even though you might have been there uh, right out of mom's womb. Um, I shower the same grace on you that those who come to me uh, in the 11th hour. And my property is always to have mercy. And no matter how desperate the situation is in your life, you need to know that I'm looking for you in your desperation. And I'm finding you. In fact, what Henry Light and what the parable, this parable says, and the first being last and the last being first, is that God is so for us that it turns out that he's against himself. God is so for us that he's against himself. Think back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve blew it. 
as much as you can possibly, like one rule, there's one rule. But if you've ever had children, you know that it doesn't matter, it's going to get broken. And, and so you have one rule and, and they break it. And, um, and yet, even then, God sets into motion his plan of salvation. He begins to set forward the rescue mission of coming and redeeming his people, even knowing that it would cost him everything. And the God who goes to such great lengths to even sacrifice himself is the God who stands in the gap in our lives. That no matter how much we blow it, no matter what our circumstances are, God's arm is never too short to save. Light wrote, Abide with me in 1847, and he wrote it while he was dying of tuberculosis. And not just that, he was also suffering emotionally from the departure of most of his congregation to another church. And he survived only about three weeks after he finished writing Abide With Me. Let me read it real quick. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens, Lord with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, abide with me. Thou on my head in early youth did smile. I mean, this is light testimony. And though rebellious and perverse meanwhile, thou hast not left me, oft as I left thee. O to the close, O Lord, abide with me. I need thy presence every passing hour, what by thy grace can foil the tempter's power, who like thyself my guide and stay can be. Through cloud and sunshine, Lord, abide with me. I fear no foe, with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight, and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still, if thou abide with me. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's faint shadows flee. In life and death, O Lord, abide with me. I probably would totally discard this hymn if Light wrote it at the height of his ministry, when he was packing it out, when things were going really great. Uh, But when you sing it and when you read it, knowing what Light is going through at that very moment, where is death sting? Are you really serious? You have tuberculosis. It stings a lot. Uh, I, 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 through the gloom, uh, your, your life is completely shrouded in gloom and, and failure. Uh, you, you don't go out with a blast. You're, you're going out uh, with a whimper. And yet he understands that he triumphs still by looking to the cross and by looking to Jesus who was there his whole life through good and through ill. For God's faithfulness is great, so great that he is even against himself. Questions, comments, concerns? Well, I was struck by the hymn in church today that that no one can with withstand the devil that he wins yeah that that from a mighty fortress on earth is not his equal right right. sons and daughters of god 
Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.